1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as in some of them did and were killed by snakes and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. If you're here this morning and you're not a kid, I want you to think back to when you were a kid. Think back to all those times you went to the store with your mom. Do you ever remember her saying something like, now we're only going in to get you clothes for school? I remember my mom saying things like that. She knew that as soon as I walked into the store, I'd want to weasel my way over to the toy department to look at all the toys. It's funny, because I'm not sure I've changed in this regard since then. <laughs> I go to Tractor su Supply and I say to myself, now we're only going in to get dog food. And uh, surprise of surprises, 30 minutes later, I'm looking at a bunch of other things that I don't need. I know this isn't just a guy thing. You ladies go to Target and the same phenomenon occurs. It's just tough for us to stay on track. We get easily distracted. It's a tendency that extends to all areas of life. We make resolutions and we don't stick with them. Time set aside for personal devotion and church life gets taken over by other things. We're distractible creatures. This reality has some implications for us as we consider our roles as leaders. Last week I staked out a few things. I demonstrated both from our lived experience and from the testimony of Scripture that all of us occupy roles as leaders. Even if our role as a leader is small, maybe it's just in your own home. And that God has called us to be intentional in leading one another. I said that leadership requires three things. 
This requires people, direction, influence, and followers, basically, influence followers. And that all those conditions obtain in our life because we don't live on uninhabited islands. All of us are heading somewhere, and all of us do have a degree of influence over each other, even if it's very, very small. And so it's a matter of just becoming intentional about that. We're always leading people to one place or another. But as Christians, we're supposed to be calling them, leading them to a particular place. And so we're going to be digging into that second piece today. Direction, conviction. It's the piece where distraction comes into play. If we go off course, anyone who's following us is liable to go off course too. If we're going to commit to staying on course, we have to know where we are going. We have to know our destination, our end point. And so this brings us to the passage which you've heard. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 11. In these verses, Paul's telling the Corinthians, he's telling us that the events of the Exodus, the departure of the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, from Egypt into the Promised Land, he's saying that journey is instructive for us. Now, just to build some context here, in the previous chapter, he ends the chapter in verses 24 through 27 by saying this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body, and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul characterizes the Christian life as being like running a race. Anyone who's running in a race is in pursuit of a prize. And in order to win that race, the runner has to know the direction they're going. Otherwise, they're going to just run off course and they'll never win the race. And so when we turn to this next chapter, Paul begins fleshing all this out as he looks to the example of the Israelites. Now, the goal, the prize of the Christian life, is life in the kingdom of God, which includes everlasting life, eternal life, salvation, all that, but it's a big picture sort of thing. We're looking towards that kingdom which is coming. And so, it's in light of that goal that Paul brings up Moses and the Israelites. And it's a really fitting comparison when you think about it. What have the Israelites done? They've abandoned Egypt because they're in pursuit. They're heading towards the promised land. Both their journey and our journey come on the heels of God intervening to save us. This is something kind of worth noting here, is that Moses didn't save the Israelites from slavery. God did. Remember how God finds Moses. He's fled Egypt because he murdered a man. So he's just a shepherd out in the desert. 
And he's confronted by God in the form of a burning bush. And God says, you're supposed to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses is like, that's not my job. I'm not doing that. How could I possibly talk? And God makes a little concession for him. And he allows his brother Aaron to do the talking. But still, Moses is supposed to be the one that's leading his people out of Israel. He doesn't do this by, like, organizing a coup or anything like that. No. He does it by just telling Pharaoh, you've got to let him go, and if not, uh, God's going to show you. And God showed him by bringing all these plagues upon Egypt. And finally, you know, Pharaoh lets the people go, but then he's like, actually, I don't want them to go. I want to bring them back, make them be my slaves. And so he chases them down, intending to get them, and uh, they're right against the Red Sea. And at this point, Moses and the Israelites are probably thinking, we're toast. But in Exodus 14, 13 through 14, after being instructed by God, Moses tells the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. We occupy the same position. It's God who has saved us in Christ. It's God's doing. All we need to do is just be still and say, yes, yes, please save me. And receive that in Christ. But like Moses and the Israelites, we are the church is invited in on the action. You remember when the Red Sea was parted, he told Moses, take that staff and raise it up. There was nothing powerful in the staff or in Moses. It was God's power at work. God's the prime mover. And that's, it's the same thing with us. God's invited us to do things. And it's not because the church is powerful. It's not because our church is powerful here in situate. It's because God is powerful. And so we can hold our staff up and act along with God's purposes. Paul notes something else as well here in these verses. He notes how they saw all these miracles that God performed in the the wilderness. Of how God provided food for them and drink for them when they were lacking those things. They were witness to, to miracles. And the same is true for us. We have witnessed miracles. Now maybe you're thinking like, I don't think I've seen anything like too crazy happen. No one walking on water, <laughs> something like that. But I think we kind of discount the true miracle that it is that any of us who are in Christ are where we are today. I know when I look at my own life and where God has taken me from, it's truly a miracle. There's no natural reason why I should be a pastor, why I should be standing here. I should be in a very deep, dark place based on where I saw my life heading. But I was confronted by Christ. And you all have that that story too. Even if you forget it, sometimes when you're in the faith for a long time, you kind of take for granted who you are. (laughs) But who you are today is only because of the grace of Christ which has seasoned you, which has transformed you. 
This is all the outcome of the resurrection. of Christ's victory over death and sin, and even the whole course of human history is a miracle, really. To see what God has done through Christ. This man who seemed of no account from a little village of Nazareth. Israelites saw miracles. And yet, they doubted. Many of them never saw the promised land. Why? Because they ran right off course. They engaged in idolatry, sexual immorality, testing Christ, which seems, based on what I've looked at here, seems to be synonymous with them grumbling against God, not trusting God kind of putting to the test, well, if you really care for us, do X, Y, and Z. They said that they were intent on going to the promised land, that their heart was in the promised land. But their actions showed otherwise. Their bodies were heading to the promised land, but their hearts were actually back in Egypt. That's the temptation that faces us when we're in the wilderness. Because when we're in the wilderness, we see clearly this is not the promised land. This is not how things ought to be. And this is also the experience of the Christian life. We're followers of Jesus, and we look around us and we're saying, this is not how life is supposed to be. And then, when things don't go our way, when things in our life happen that are full of brokenness and just bad stuff, we kind of look to God and like, well, why? That's a big question, why? We don't fully comprehend all the whys and whats and all of that. But I think one basic thing that God would say in response is, you're not living in heaven. heaven. Heaven has not come to earth yet. We're still in the wilderness. You, don't, you shouldn't expect that life is going to be like it is in the promised land. As the Israelites were heading to the promised land, you're heading there, they did not enjoy all the comforts that they would enjoy when they had there. The farms, the honey, milk and honey, all that. No. They were just like, where are we going to get some bread to eat, some water to drink? And God provided for them. But life was more uncomfortable from, when, from once they were coming from Egypt. And sometimes that's what it's like for us today, too. We think, man, the Christian life is uncomfortable. In some ways it was easier when I was a non-Christian. I didn't have to think about going to church on a Sunday. I just roll out of bed, go to brunch, all that. And that's just a really small thing. But it's easy for us to kind of look back at Egypt and be like, oh, man, that looked pretty nice. That's because we're forgetting where we are going. And we're forgetting that the reality is, is that this is a wilderness. That we're not living in, in heaven. That in many ways, this life can be a picture of hell because it's a picture of separation from God. Going through the wilderness is difficult. But what we have to remember, and what God reminded the Israelites again and again, is He is with them. And if God is with us, we will make it there. And what Paul says in these verses is that 
is that all of this, the behavior of the Israelites as they were going through the wilderness and their lack of loyalty, their faithfulness, he says, this is instructive for us. Verse 6, he says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. That's the problem. It's a heart issue. Their heart has been set on evil things. Now, all along, it's interesting. You know, you go back to some of the earliest Jewish scriptures. We're seeing how it's a heart issue. And you get to some of the later scriptures in the prophets. And we see that God continues to put his finger on the human heart. And, that is, the, and that, that is the place where transformation needs to occur. The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, offers a prophecy foretelling the day in which God would come and transform the human heart. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. What God is promising here through the prophet Jeremiah is that he's going to bring restoration to the human heart. He's going to renovate humanity. He has actually brought this to pass through Jesus Christ. When you see Jesus, what you're seeing is the new man that God has made. And he sets us, he sets him before us. Think about Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, 1, where the author of the epistle encourages us to look to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who bore the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. And it's in light of that. We are called to run the race of faith. Christ is our vision. And Christ, in the position that he now occupies, at the right hand of God, which is King of kings and Lord of lords, his kingdom. This is what we're called to fix our eyes on and forget Egypt and not get distracted in the wilderness. All of this is going to culminate in a new creation. This is what God tells us in Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5, as he showed the apostle John. John says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That's great. That's awesome. 
to imagine that God is going to bring restoration to the entirety of our universe. All of this earth. He's not just saving, he's not just plucking human beings out. He's saying, no, this earth that we've so loved and which is yet so broken, he's going to heal and restore and make it completely new. So that we might live in it with him. So that God, so that we might share a home with God. So there's something that is before us, which we are anticipating that we are looking forward. And yet there's something that we can enjoy even now of this new creation. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the purpose for which we have been saved. That's the future that's laid out before us. That in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Because the kingdom of God is a place of righteousness, of justice, of peace. If we're heading there, then our lives are going to start looking like that more and more. You think about, like, if you were taking a, a trip to Florida, for instance, and I think I got a picture of a guy packing his bags. You know, you're packing your bags to go to Florida. Now, imagine if your kid started packing snow boots and a snowsuit and stuff like that. You'd be like, you're packing the wrong stuff. We're going to Florida. No snow in Florida most of the time. <laughs> um, when you're going to a tr- on a trip, you pack appropriate items for that tra- a trip, even in the present, even while you're not already at your destination. So when we think about it that way, packing for where we are going, we have to ask ourselves, how does the destination of God's kingdom affect how we pack our lives, how we fill our lives. You say that you want justice, that you want righteousness, that you want people to be good, that you want peace on earth. Then what about now? Are you doing those things now? What, ha- what would happen if someone opened the suitcase of your life? When they open that suitcase, would they say, oh, this person's clearly packing for the kingdom of God? Or would they find things in your suitcase that are just going to rot and die and pass away? We need to keep the direction of our life, the destination of our life at the forefront of our minds lest we go astray, lest we get off course, lest we start packing snow boots in our bags. 
Peter tells us this in 2 Peter 3, verses 11 through 14. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed is coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. It's in light of this reality of Christ's coming of the approaching kingdom that we respond accordingly by seeking to live lives of righteousness. And this reality, as we live in response to it, would lead us to leave others. You know, I just kind of gave the example of a family packing for a vacation. People are looking at what you're packing your life with. You set out the example for them to follow. Now, obviously, when we're talking about leadership and the roles that we all fill in the in this life. Not all of us are going to be preachers, but I want you to notice the basis that, of Paul's charge that he gives to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 2. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Notice the basis of the charge that Paul gives. It's in view of Christ's appearing in his kingdom. It's on this basis that Timothy is compelled to lead. And it's on the same basis that we too are compelled to to lead others in view of Christ and his kingdom. When we go back to the first disciples during that time when Christ had he'd been raised from the dead and he was with them, but he hadn't ascended to the Father, we find them trying to sort out what they were supposed to do next, what they were supposed to expect next. And it's interesting because they do have this restoration in view. They're anticipating God's kingdom. So much so that they ask Jesus about it. But I want you to notice what Jesus calls them to do as they anticipate the the coming of his kingdom. Acts 1, verses 6 through 8. It says, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. These are their marching orders. This is the direction that Jesus sets them in to all the world as they anticipate the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, as we think about the journey of the Israelites from Egypt 
to the promised land, it's kind of easy for us to kind of conceive how they could kind of get up and go. You say, okay, you got to pack your bags, get the walking stick, hit the road. When we think about ourselves, though, and when we think about the direction, the road that God has called us to, sometimes it can be a little bit frustrating because it feels like it's all conceptual, very spiritual, maybe just like metaphorical. But the truth is, is that it's not. It's just as practical. The kingdom comes closer as we go to the world with the gospel. Now, we don't know the timing of everything and all of that. But this is the call, that as we go forth with the gospel, we know that as that work is fulfilled, and God only knows, and in all his timing and predestination of all that, but as that work is fulfilled, then Christ and his kingdom will come. Jesus tells us this. He says, Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. See, our journey takes us through space, across streets, lands, and seas, across time from one generation to the next, as we testify that Jesus is king and call all people to him. You ask where you're supposed to go. You're supposed to go to the world with the gospel. And the reason why is this. There's a point and purpose to all of this that God is bringing about in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 1, verses 8 through 10, With all wisdom and understanding, God the Father made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Our leadership in all our little circles looks like bringing everything under Christ's rule. It means bringing our home under Christ's rule. Our workplaces under Christ's rule. Our politics under Christ's rule. It's not brought to completion by our efforts, but we remember that something of the new creation has come today so that we can see the reign of Christ because he is ruling and reigning even if that rule and reign has not been completely finally revealed. If we say that we are followers of the way of Jesus, that means that we have broken off from following the ways of the world. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 2. Verses 1 and 2, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And then when you jump down, you see the sharp contrast, verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we've abandoned the ways of this world. We've abandoned the ruler of the kingdom of the air, talking about Satan. And as we've come to Christ, we've been given work to do. God has prepared work for us. We're not saved by our work, but we are saved for this work. When we're committed to announcing that Jesus is King, we're doing that work. When we're not, though, we're being disloyal to it. We're failing. When we're not bringing our circles of influence under His rule, we're not leading others to the kingdom. We're leading them back to Egypt, back to slavery. Paul tells us that in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, our original passage here, he says that this, all of this has occurred with the Israelites. He says these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. There's a lesson for us who have seen the culminations of the ages come. What is the culmination of the ages? It's Christ's appearance. Hebrews 9, verses 26-28 says, Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But He has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So that's the culmination of the ages. And then there's something else that is to come. Verse 27, Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. There's more that is to come. The salvation which He promises to those that are waiting for Him. That's what we're anticipating. That's what we're walking towards today and which we're inviting others to walk towards with us. But staying on course, staying on track, is not easy. There are so many distractions. Being a Christian leader requires that we cut through the noise. As we go over the hills and through the valleys, you need to be the one in your circle who says, let's make sure we stick with the map. Let's not forget where we're going. This journey demands both our reliance on the Spirit and each other in discerning the paths we should take as we reach the destinations in between. Think about those old American pioneers who made their way out to Oregon. They kept their ultimate destination in sight. They had to, otherwise they'd just give up. Like, Why would we be going through all this if we didn't have some hope of reaching Oregon? But they also identified the points of travel in between. We fix our eyes on Christ in His kingdom, but He has given us this age 
this age of the in-between for us to travel. So when we think about direction, we think both about what is ultimate and also what is immediate. We think about the future kingdom, and yet we also think about what our church should be doing in the year ahead in light of this. Sometimes it's easy for us to keep those things separate. Like we just kind of like look down, okay, this is the situation our church is in or my life is in. I just, okay, I, I will make a plan, but uh, we try to figure it out, but we don't do so in light of God's coming kingdom. We need to think about what we're doing in our households right now in light of the kingdom. You need to think about how you can make your place of work more like Christ, more like the kingdom of God, even if it's not owned by Christians. What's the little bit you can do? Remember, you have little spheres of influence. Wherever God has placed you, he's calling you to lead there, however big or small your circle may be. You are called to lead your circle to the rule of Christ, to the kingdom which is coming, to the salvation, the life of new creation found in Jesus. He is our rock in the wilderness. Let us pray. Dear Father, We thank you that in Christ you have given us direction. Because apart from him, Father, we were like the Israelites when they were enslaved in Egypt. We were bound by the curse of sin and death. We were subject to the rule of Satan. Our hearts were captured by evil. But you have liberated our hearts, Father, in Jesus Christ. So that we might make our journey towards the kingdom which is coming. My Father, we give thanks that we can enjoy a taste of that kingdom even today. You give us manna in the wilderness, Father. And so, Father, we pray that the grace, the miracles that we experience here today as we have come to Christ would help us keep our eyes fixed on him so that we would not go off course. And so that, Father, in light of our ultimate destination, we would know what we need to do today. And broadly speaking, Father, we know that this means going to the world, testifying about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us the courage to do this that you'd give us the heart to do this, that we would love you and love others to do this. So that we might lead others to the kingdom, just as others have led us to you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series on Christian leadership. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.